If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 15. As we continue to walk through this great book, Romans chapter 15. We're going to be looking today at verses 14 through verse 21. Romans 15, verse 14 through 21. And is my mic on? Is it just me or... All right, my ears might be a little plugged, so I can't hear anything. You're going to have to give me some extra loud amens and hallelujahs today because I'm struggling to hear. Um, you might notice in the bulletin it says Romans 16. Uh, that's just because I copied and pasted the wrong text as Christy put the bulletins together. So that's my apology. We are in Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And it says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, then I, have no re then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs, and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's pray as we get into this passage. Father, we ask that you would help us today as we study this word, that you would speak to us, make it clear to us, encourage us this morning. I pray for the lost, that they might be saved today, for the weak, that they might be strengthened under the hearing of your word, for the faithful, that they might be built up and encouraged. God, I pray for myself that you would help me to preach with clarity this text, preach your truths, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts and shape us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And as you hear the, the babies today, all right, as you hear the babies today, two things. One, uh, we, we, we will have a nursery eventually, just not for the next couple weeks. But as you hear the babies, all right, this is the future. Don, you don't got to take the baby out. <laughs> this is the future of our church right here. And let's praise God for the children, <clears throat> for the babies. 
Little voices are to be praised, not to be seen as a distraction, amen? amen. From the mouth of babes. All right, um, so we're in Romans chapter 15, verse 14 through 21, and I want to preach to you this morning on this text, and I'm going to title my sermon, What Christ Has Accomplished Through Me. What Christ Has Accomplished Through Me. And I am getting over a little something in my throat, so bear with me this morning. My son Haddon has recently taken up the trumpet. At school, they learn an instrument in his Mount Royal Elementary School band. He chose the trumpet, and we went to his concert, and we heard it. It was glorious. It was like, it was pretty much it, right? It was wonderful. He lost sleep over it. He was worried about it, and he did great. He was telling me just the other day that when they were practicing for their performance, Leo, who's a good friend of the Garden Church, many of you know Leo, who's a master trumpeteer, he said Leo was leading the band and kind of teaching them some things. He helps out at Mount Royal. And he said Leo was having everybody warmed up, and Leo picked up his trumpet to warm up. And if you've ever heard Leo play the trumpet, you know that his warm-up is like mind-blowing. You know, he's just, and he said he went like so high and so, you know, all over the place. Now here's the thing. A trumpet is a trumpet. The glory of the trumpet, the usefulness of the trumpet, depends on whose hand the trumpet is in. And this morning what I want to do is hone in on these verses and understand that we are who we are based on whether or not we are played and used by the Master. In verse 17, the Apostle says, I have reason to be proud for my work. That's kind of a rare statement for Paul. But then he goes on, he's almost speaking uh, tongue-in-cheek. He, he goes on to say, for, let me tell you why I'm proud. He said, because I'm not even going to talk about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. An alien looking at a keyboard would probably think this is quite a, an amazing machine. It makes these different sounds. There's these bit different buttons that you can push. But when a keyboard is put into the hands of a jazz pianist, we discover its usefulness. Or a turntable in the hands of a DJ. Or a hammer in the hands of a carpenter. Or a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon. The usefulness of the instrument is found in the hands of the master. Are you with me? So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is one that had been persecuting the Christians for many years. He was saved on the Damascus Road, transformed by the gospel of God, and taken as one who was an instrument of violence and destruction to become an instrument of building the church of God 
and displaying the gospel of God and seeing an increase of the kingdom of God. Because Paul went from one in the hands of a destroyer and he became a vessel, an instrument in the hands of the master. And this morning in this text, it's kind of a, a little different kind of text in that Paul's talking about his ministry here. And I'm going to briefly point out why he's doing this. But what I want to do today, and the way I want to approach this, is in this way. I want to understand first that the Apostle Paul was a faithful instrument in the hands of God. And we can praise God for Paul's work. Really, in many ways, all of us are here, Christians, stemming back in some fashion to the gospel that went from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles around him. He was a faithful instrument. And so what I want to do is I want to look at us as faithful instruments, or at least that's our desire, to be faithful ministers, to be faithful servants of God, to be useful, to be useful for the kingdom of God. And so let's look at, I want to show you five qualities of a faithful instrument in this passage. Are you with me? Yes. Quality number one. What we see is comforting encouragement. Quality number one, comforting encouragement. Verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Paul's almost apologetic here. You know, Paul, for the last couple chapters, has been talking about unity and has been getting onto the church in some way, at least that's the way it would have felt, for having ethnic and cultural divisions among them. They're div they were dividing between Jew and Gentile. They were dividing between non-essentials. And Paul is really coming hard and saying, hey, you can't divide over non-essentials. But then what Paul does in this one verse, it's like he steps back and he says, but let me tell you something. I'm really satisfied with you. I, you you're a healthy church. You're doing really well. Paul has never visited the church in Rome. Paul has, uh, uh, Paul did not plant the church in Rome. Paul was just Paul to the church in Rome. But he has written now 15 chapters of directive theology and directive practice. And so what he's saying is, is hey, I'm not getting on to you. I'm not angry with you. I'm not dissatisfied with you. I'm not even being critical with you as I write these hard things. But rather, I am very satisfied in you. And there's a, here's another note that we can learn from the Apostle Paul here. When you're encouraging someone, you don't just say, hey, I, I'm encouraged in you. I'm satisfied in you. You tell them why. And so Paul says, I'm satisfied in you, not period, but let me tell you why. He gives three reasons he's satisfied. Number one, because they are full of goodness. They're full of goodness. Full there means, means to be 
plentiful. It means to be filled up with goodness. Referring to good deeds, good works. You guys, you guys are doing well. You've got a plentiful supply of good deeds among you. You are filled, he says, with all knowledge. Now, he doesn't mean that every individual has all knowledge and all doctrine, but he's talking about them corporately as a church, saying as, as, a, as the churches in Rome, you've got good doctrine from A to Z. You've got it all. You know your systematic theology. You know your biblical theology. You know the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that they're able to instruct one another. That word instruct carries the idea <coughs> excuse me, of admonition, which is the idea of correction. And he's saying you have the ability to correct each other when someone's out of line, when someone's drifting away, when someone's moving into a dangerous place spiritually, you are, you're good. You're, you're doing well in ministry. You are competent to disciple one another and to grow each other. And so here, number one, we can learn from the Apostle Paul here in that a faithful instrument of God is to be an encourager. Application. Be an encourager. If you're like me, that's not always the most natural thing to do. If you're like me, it's, it's easier to point out where someone is wrong. It's easier to criticize than it is to encourage. Is anybody with me? Or am I alone in this? But where I'm challenged is that Paul is an encourager. He even uses family language for people he's never met. He says, my brothers. And that's a very broad term. It would include the sisters. My brothers and sisters. He's saying my family. He's using family language as he seeks to encourage them. Secondly, point of application, be an encourager even when there's still growing to do. See, check it out. There was still growing to do in the Roman church. They weren't perfect. They didn't have it all together. They had some divisions. They had some issues that they had to work on. But Paul encourages them and says, I'm satisfied in them even though they still have some growing to do. Another good example of this is the church in Corinth. I don't know if you guys know anything about the church in Corinth, but they were a notorious church. They were a church that still in many ways was falling back into the world and had one foot in the world trying to have one foot the other foot in Christ. And as a result, there was immorality in the church. There was a man who was committing sexual immorality with his, his, his uh, uh, mother-in-law. There, there were divisions in the church. They were trampling over each other. They were dividing over personalities. There was a lot of work to do still in the church in Corinth. Yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, if we could turn our phones off. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Um, Paul says this. Listen to these words of encouragement. He says, I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God given to you that in every way, 
You are enriched in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any gift. That's what Paul wrote to a messed up church. What I'm saying is, is Paul, the Apostle Paul, was an encourager even when there was growing still to do. We could use this building as an analogy. You know, you could easily come in here right now and say, oh man, you know, we still got to change out the switch plates. You know, I see some, a couple spots need to be touched up. There's still tape, blue tape on the, on the stairs. The, the upstairs isn't finished. Um, there's still old lights that are half working in the bathrooms. You know, there's still work to be done, right? That's one way to approach it. The other way to approach it is to say, wow, I remember what this looked like six months ago. You see what I'm saying? This is how we ought to approach one another. Yes, we are all buildings with much work to be done. And we could point out all of the things that are still wrong with our, your brothers and sisters. Or we can see where the grace of God has brought them up till now. Meaning, we can see God's grace in every person as we imagine where they would be if it wasn't for His mercy. Where they would be if it wasn't for His grace. What would they believe if it wasn't for the good doctrine that they've been taught? How would they act if they had never encountered the person and work of Jesus Christ? So instead of just merely being a critical individual, saints, as servants of God, let's be encouragers and encourage one another in the grace of God. That's step one for being a vessel of service. Number two, second quality I want to point out here. Second quality is courageous ambition, uh, admonition. I'm sorry, courageous admonition. Admonition means uh, to, to be corrected, to be told. Being bold, being courageous in your admonition. Look at verse 15. The apostle goes on and he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So he's saying, look, I'm satisfied with you, but I'm being bold, aren't I? I'm being bold. Let's just stop here for a second and recognize that as Paul is being bold it doesn't mean that he's not being encouraging. As Paul is bringing some courageous reminders to the church, it doesn't mean that he's tearing them down. You know, and we could turn this around and say, hey, when you feel torn down because someone is being bold in their courageous reminders of Jesus Christ and the application of Him for your life, don't take it personally as if they're tearing you down. Those two things are not uh, uh, opposite of one another, but rather the two sides of the same coin. As I might occasionally be preaching the word in a way that you feel like, man, he's not happy with us, or as a minister, another minister in the church or a member in the church is instructing you in certain ways, 
we got to understand that we, we need bold words in our lives. And that's the other side of encouragement and love. And so Paul then goes on to say, by way of reminder, I've been bold. By way of reminder. Do you guys understand that humans have forgetting, a forgetting problem? Like you can't even remember where you put your keys. All right? They're right next to you. Or in your hands, and you're looking for them. How much more do we need reminders of these things of God? These spiritual things that we can't even see and feel and touch and grab onto. These are things of faith. You know the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know what that means for you. You know the transformation that the Holy Spirit has brought. You know the fact that you were going down this road and He's put you on a new path and you are to now be walking down a road of holiness and godliness and life, but you forgot. You forget. And you wake up going about your day in the way that you feel and you're stumbling into all kinds of sin issues and you're forgetting to glorify God with your life and you're starting to divide from those over non-essentials, those people that are different from you and you need a reminder of what you already know. This is what Paul's saying. So by way of reminder, I'm speaking bold to you, he says. Step one, an effective vessel for God. Be an encourager. Step two, be bold. Number three, third quality, is a concentration on the gospel. We are to have a concentration on the gospel. So what's Paul actually doing here? I want to just ask that question for a moment. Why is this here? Paul is giving a defense for his own writing to the Romans. He's been writing all these chapters to them. He's been instructing them. And he's stepping back and he's saying, let me tell you why I have the right and ability and authority to do this. That's really what he's doing. And he's saying that God has given me a grace to be a minister to the Gentiles. In verse 15, it continues. He says, because of the the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That word because right there is the reason for why he's being bold. He says, I'm I'm being bold with you in these writings because God has given me a grace to be a minister to the Gentiles. And he uses here in these two verses old ceremonial language of priest and offering, taking us back to the Old Testament in imagery. And he sees himself, he imagines himself as doing the priestly work, serving not bulls and goats, but rather the gospel of God. Taking the gospel of God to those who need it. Notice he calls here, the gospel, he says it's the gospel of God. That's a genitive in the Greek, which means it, the, the noun belongs uh, to the subject. The gospel belongs to God. This is not the gospel of Paul. 
This is not the gospel of Joel Kerr's or the Garden Church. This isn't what that church believes versus what another church believes, or I don't see things the way you do, I see things a different way. There's only one gospel, and it doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. God is the author and the origin and the owner of this good news, and it also has Him as the end of it, as it brings glory to God. Think of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does it begin? In the beginning, God created, and he created human beings that were to reflect his glory to the world. However, sin entered in and forever corrupted and marred human beings so that we could not reflect the glory of God as we ought. And as a result, the judgment of God came down on human beings, and we were all now under the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, began a plan of redemption so that human beings might be restored to fellowship with Him. And so God, the Father, sent God the Son into the world who lived the life that you and I should have lived, who died the death that you and I should have died, And as he hung on the tree, he took the judgment of God on himself, in his own flesh and blood, so that he might be the perfect sacrifice to free us from the penalty of sin and death. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Three days later, as the old preachers say, The stone was rolled away, and Christ got up from the dead. And he calls us now to turn from our sins and to trust in him. And those who do are forgiven now of their sins, and one day they will be recipients of something that is so much better than what we can see right now. One day Christ is coming again, and the world will be transformed as the dwelling place for God and God will be the center of our worship and attention for all of eternity. This is the gospel of God. And so Paul then is saying that my job was to serve as a priest the gospel of God. What's his offering? Because, you know, priests. Priests represent people on behalf of God, and they bring an offering. Well, his offering that he imagines here is not that of bulls or goats, but rather his offering is the Gentiles themselves. He's saying, my work before God has been been seeing the conversion of Gentiles as they come to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. My point is this. Paul's ministry was concentrated on the gospel. His ministry had a laser focus on the gospel. And yours should as well. That's our ministry. Of course, there's a hundred different ways that we approach our ministry, a hundred different ways that we kind of go about things and jobs that we work and skills that we have and things that we do for the community and block parties and buildings and different things. But at the core of it, saints, 
our ministry is to be laser-focused on the gospel of God. And our offering to God is nothing more than those converted through the gospel ministry. And so here, as Paul is talking now about, uh, um, begins to talk about pride, what we see is that his courageous proclamation was not in his preferences, but in the promises of God. He was not boasting in his culture, but he was boasting in Christ. He was not boasting, proclaiming, sharing his ideas, but he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly Paul's ministry is unique. None of us are apostles. None, none of us have been given the, 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 the title apostle to the Gentiles. But we have been given the great commission. We have been, by Jesus Christ, sent into all the world to preach the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them all things. That applies to every one of us who is in Jesus Christ this morning today. In other words, the reason God has still left you here on this earth is because he has a great commission for you. That's why you're here. It's not just to save up for a nice retirement. It's not just to have a nice apartment or get a better job or be the top in your career. You're here because God has an eternal purpose for you. And that is to glorify God with all of your life. You know, whether you're a janitor pushing a mop or a bus driver or a sandwich maker, you glorify God in every aspect and as you're living your life, you have a laser focus on gospel ministry as the Lord give you, gives you opportunities. So qualities of an instrument in God's hands. Number one, comforting encouragement. Number two, courageous proclamation. Number three, a concentration on the gospel. And number four, number four, confident in Christ's work. Paul was confident in Christ's work. Look at verse 17. He shows us what to take pride in. Which, by the way, before I read this, let me just remind you that Paul was a tent maker. He was. He was a tent maker. So Paul, at times, had to support his ministry through making tents, working his job. Work, that was a skill that he developed. Other times, he was able, able to be a fully funded missionary. But what's interesting is this. What's interesting is Paul never talks about the quality of his tents. Isn't that interesting? The Apostle Paul made tents. Wouldn't it be cool if we had one? Still today. But we know nothing of his tent ministry. And I think Paul probably, quote unquote, as we would use the language today, I think he took pride in his tents. I imagine he worked hard on them and that they were nice, and that they were good quality as unto the Lord as he would teach his workers. But Paul says he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And, I, and so I think, you know, building tents was a means to an end for Paul so that he might glorify God with all of his life. Paul was highly educated, yet he never flaunts his education. Paul lived his pre-Christian life as a gangster, yet he never glorified in his past sins. 
Paul made it to the high ranks of Roman military, but that's not what he's most proud of in life. In verse 17, let's look at it. He says, I have reason to be proud. I have reason to be proud. In what? Of my work for God. For, here's why. For, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Meaning, I got reason to be proud of my work for Christ because it's Christ's work, not my work. That's why he's proud of it. What Christ has accomplished through Paul. What, what was it? What was it? Verse 18 continues, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Meaning, the conversion of the Gentiles is what Christ accomplished through him, and he was proud of that work. Now how did the Gentiles get converted through Paul's ministry? That's the next question. Was it because of Paul himself? Was it because Paul was so great? You see, Paul's talking about pride here. And we know that Paul despises pride. Pride is ugly. Pride does not look attractive. When you're proud, you make yourself feel good for a few seconds or a few minutes or maybe a couple hours and you make everybody else feel miserable around you. When you're a proud individual, what you're saying is, is man, I've done great things. I'm a great person and actually I'm better than you are. That's really what pride is saying, isn't it? And so how then were the Gentiles converted? The answer is this. It wasn't really Paul's doing. And that's why you can take pride in it. Look at verse 18. Continues. This is how they were converted. He says, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. Let me break that down. He says they were converted by, the, by, by word and deed. Meaning, I just spoke. And I lived my life accordingly. They were converted by signs and wonders. Paul was an apostle, and part of the apostolic work was the ability to perform miracles to confirm to the Gentiles that this was indeed a, a, a new word from God. And then he goes on to say, by the power of the Spirit of God. Don't you see here that what Paul's saying is, is the work that I'm proud of is the conversion of the Gentiles, and it happened because of a message that I got from God that I just delivered. It happened because of miracles that came from God just through my hands. And it happened because of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Meaning it was all God's work. Amen? Amen. What are you most proud of in your own life? Let it be what God has accomplished for His redemptive purposes through you. I remember Ivan Ung, one of our church members uh, a couple years ago who graduated from MICA. And, uh, you know, it's an illustrious art college and he's from Singapore and he's a wonderful artist. And he was able, he was at the top of his class and he was able to speak, to give the speech to the MICA graduation. And at his graduation, which by the way, Mike is a very, very secular campus. At his graduation, he was very careful to figure out how to make much of Christ in the gospel in his word to the student body. And it was beautiful. I was there for it. And what 
Ivan was most excited about during his time here in Baltimore wasn't uh, graduating from an illustrious art college or even now going on with an art career, but what he's most excited about is the, the platform that the Lord has given him to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of another friend of mine who is in D.C. He's, he's one of the top lawyers in D.C. I mean, one of the top lawyers in the country. He's had an illustrious career. And now at this stage, and he's, he's in his 50s, and he, he's, because of the, some, some things that he's working on right now, he's able to actually speak to Harvard Law students and, uh, and, and law students across the country at the, at the highest level of education on a Christian perspective on criminal justice. And he, and he told me, he said, I'm just using it as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people where they, the gospel's never been preached. And that is what brings him to tears, not the successes in his career. I'm using these worldly successful people just as an analogy here. And I get that's probably not most of us. That's not, that's not my, my story. You know, maybe for you, you never were able to accomplish your dreams on this earth. Maybe you never were able to graduate from the college you wanted to graduate from. But don't you realize that in Christ, you've been commissioned with a gospel message the same kind of ministry that Paul thought was the only boastworthy thing in his life. And that's been given to you and I. Why? It's because we can be confident in Christ's work. That's where our confidence comes from as ministers of the gospel. Number five, and I'm done. Number five, clear ambition. We are to have a clear ambition. Paul had a unique task to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he talks about it in verse 19. He says, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, thank you, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. From Jerusalem to, to Illyricum, these were the borders of Paul's ministry. Paul took the gospel all across the known land around the Mediterranean where the Gentiles lived. And he's saying, I fulfilled the gospel work. Not that everybody had been converted, but what he's saying is it was his strategy to go into a city and to plant a church there, and that church would become a missionary sending church to reach that region. So Paul was on the frontier. He was a seed-planting kind of ministry. Paul himself said that some plant seeds and other, others water those seeds and others harvest that fruit. And Paul understood his work as going in where nobody else has gone so that all across the known Gentile world, gospel ministry would be planted. And so in verse 20, then we see his strategy as that of being a frontier kind of work, meaning he didn't go in where there was already a church, where someone had already put a foundation. That was great. He praised God for that. The ministry that he was called to in particular was to go where there was no gospel ministry, where the name of Jesus was not known, where there was no church, where there was no Christian. That was Paul's strategy in taking the gospel to the world around him. And even today, we need frontier work. There are 3.2 billion people 
across the world who don't even know the name of Jesus. And God might call some of us out of this room to go into another land elsewhere to leave behind all of our comforts and our families for the frontier kind of work of taking the gospel to where there is no gospel presence. But even at a smaller scale, some of us have friends for whom you're the only Christian they know. You told them about Jesus, and it's the first time they've ever heard the message of Jesus. And in many ways, you are that frontier work for that individual planting those seeds. But the bigger thing I want to glean from this is that Paul had a clear ambition <coughs> excuse me, in his work. Amen. How might we have a clear ambition? Let me show you verse 21 as I close. And I want to try to make a case for the fact that our ambition as ministers, as servants of God, is driven by seeing myself as part of God's strategic design to bring redemption to the world. So verse 21, Paul quotes Isaiah 52. And Isaiah 52 is a message to Israel saying, hey, wake up. Verse 7 of Isaiah 52, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And by, by the time you get to verse 15, what Isaiah is saying, it's a prophecy. He's saying that Israel is going to, in some fashion, go forward into the nations and sprinkle the grace of God across many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of, because of him. For, and this is what Paul quotes in verse 21, for those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see, here's what Paul understands, is that he is the embodiment of this prophecy being fulfilled in his lifetime. Israel is to shout the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, and that was Paul's role as a Jew. He's fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling prophecy, meaning his ambition was not merely based on gospel need. That was certainly part of it, and what broke his heart was that the Gentiles might know, but it was bigger than that. It was Paul seeing himself as part of God's redemptive plan to bring salvation to the world. Now, how does this apply to us? We've been given Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, which gave us the commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Our ambition today is driven by seeing myself, yourself, as part of God's strategic design to bring redemption to the world. Amen. And so the question then, I just want to leave you this, is, is this. What work for the Lord are you taking up? Amen. What are you doing for God? I don't mean what is your church doing broadly. <laughs> I don't mean what are your friends doing. What are you doing for the Lord? Amen. In what way are you promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are the opportunities that God has given you? Who are the people that you have access to that I don't have access to? That others don't have access to? That the church as a whole might not have access to? But you do. What is the work that you are taking up for God? 
You see, as we understand this, we begin to see that there are multiple ways that we can be servants of God, instruments in His hands. We think of like foster care opportunities in the city, evangelistic opportunities in the city, getting people together that are friends of yours for an evangelistic Bible study. I drive up and down Pennsylvania Avenue and I see a crowd of people outside of the Upton Station and outside of the Penn North Station Who's going there to preach the gospel to those that are hanging out on the streets? We've got more row houses in this city than any other city. Who's going door to door on the houses other than the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, but like regular folk like us just saying, hey, I wanted to introduce myself and I'm part of this church. Is there any way we can pray for you? And actually trying to figure out how do we meet new people and how do we take the opportunities that God has given us for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word is stewardship. We are just stewards of the ideas and the the, the talents and the opportunities and the people and the relationships and the jobs and the families that God has given us. Be motivated as you see yourself as part of God's bigger plan, bringing redemption to the world. Amen? Amen. On December 4th, 2017, 400 musicians gathered at the 23rd Street Armory in Philadelphia for what they called the Symphony for Broken Instruments. Every one of the instruments that these 400 musicians had was broken. There was a violin that was held together by painter's tape. Another violin was missing an A string. A cello was brought by one of the musicians in pieces. A French horn kept dropping its mouthpiece. And the orchestra began under the director, and as the 40-minute symphony progressed, each one of the instruments found its place. Maybe it was just one note. Maybe it was an old piece of an instrument that became a drum instead of a trumpet. But the point is this, is that we are broken instruments under the direction of the master. And as we work together, each one of us, as broken instruments, we find our voice. And we find our place in the song of redemption. Under the hand of the master, we add our voice to the symphony. There are no all-stars in the kingdom of God, just broken instruments in the hand of the master. And Paul himself was not an all-star. He was a broken instrument in the hand of the master. He was a person who was about the purposes of God, and God used him for his purposes. You know, Paul here, we notice in the text, he planned to go to Spain. He tells us in Romans that he wants to visit the Romans on his way to Spain. You know that Paul never made it to Spain? That was Paul's plan, but that ultimately wasn't God's plan for Paul. And here's the point. God will use you as long as God will use you. 
And when God says you're done, you're done. And a few years later, after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, as he was being led to the Roman gauntlet for his own death, I wonder what went through his mind. I wonder what he was thinking about. And we don't know. It's not recorded for us. But I bet it was something similar to what he wrote to young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. In which he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Saint says, you are on your own deathbed in years to come. Lord willing, a very old man or woman. But who knows, maybe young. We don't know how long God is going to keep us on this planet. But as you are on your own deathbed, may you be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And when your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren gather around your bed and they say, hey, tell us about your life. Brag on yourself a little bit. I want you to say, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ that has saved us. We thank you for the Apostle Paul using him in such a powerful way to bring redemption to the Gentiles. I pray, God, that you would use us in our day in this moment of time, for your redemptive purposes. May we be faithful instruments in your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.